What we're going to do this morning is I'm preaching a sermon or bringing a teaching that is part of our Letter to the Ephesians sermon series. And the reason why we're doing this is because it's through this letter that the Apostle Paul, we'll get to him in just a moment, but it's through this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, that we discover so many things about faith, kind of the core things to faith. And so we named this teaching series, this sermon series, Identity. And this morning I'm going to talk about our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ. Now, this is going to be one of those sermons that is very kind of fundamental to the, our faith. A lot of the sermons that I get to preach, and I'm well aware of this stepping into this sermon, a lot of the sermons that I preach are a lot of fun. We get to have a lot of fun with it. This one, it's not that it's more serious, but it's foundational. And so this teaching is really going to be so that we all can kind of get the great view of what the Apostle Paul is trying to bring to us. So I want you to be aware of that. Now, identity. All Bible scholars that study Ephesians chapter 1 will tell you that the Apostle Paul is bringing a new identity to these people that are following Jesus. He's trying to explain to them what it is that we have in Christ. And that's Ephesians chapter 1. He actually does that for three chapters and then the following chapters kind of outline what it looks like to follow Jesus. How does that practically apply itself? We call it putting feet to your faith. But what I want to do this morning is deal relatively in-depth with what the Apostle Paul is trying to bring to us. And look, if you're someone who's a not yet follower of Jesus, you're kind of looking over the fence at Christianity, I think this sermon will give you a basic understanding of the Apostle Paul's heart for the world and God's heart through Christ for the world. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've made that decision my prayer is, is that this morning that the roots of your faith will grow even deeper than they have before. So the idea of identity. The Apostle Paul declares that our identity is in Christ. But before we get there, we have to know what identity is. Here's what social scientists say about identity. Identity is often described as finite as consisting, consisting of separate but distinct parts, you have an identity. I have an identity. That identity has a bunch of parts to it. There's family, there's cultural, personal, professional, etc. And a lot of our identity, believe it or not, is dri driven by our genetics. There's biology involved, there's culture, loved ones, those we cared for, those who care for us, those that we've harmed, and those that have harmed us. There's deeds that we have done, whether they're good or bad, to ourselves and to others. There's experiences that we've lived, there's choices that we've made, and all of these come together to develop our identity. Identity moves towards answering the question, if you were to answer it, it would be this, who are you? 
Who are you? Oftentimes, with that question comes the understanding of, what's my place in the world? I believe Paul answers all of these. Now, what social scientists tell us is that the idea of identity begins to process at about 14 months. There's arguments over that. But what we do know is that adolescence is a time where identity kind of goes to its greatest leap forward. How many of you look, look back on your years of adolescence and you look back on them fondly? How about middle school? Wasn't middle school just kind of a nightmare? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you sitting here are in middle school. In the name of Jesus, be blessed. But then what social scientists tell us, that between the ages of 20 and 30 will come the last, final, great shift in our identity. Actually, my daughters, who are both at UVA, gave me a book, and they asked me to read it, and it's called The Defining Decade. What a powerful book. It's written by a UVA professor and a psychiatrist about what happens in those years between the ages of 20 and 30. We just went on a strategic planning retreat for our staff, and that was the required reading that I gave to our team. The reason is, is identity is important. What happens to us and how we perceive that and how we view ourselves becomes mission critical in life. Now here's what I know, is that I'm at the age, I'm 54. I'm at the age where there's what's usually called an identity crisis. It's fondly known as a midlife crisis. It's when men who are in their 50s try to grow beards. <laughs> and it doesn't go well. So all of those that truly love you advise you to shave it off. I went through that process about a month ago. How many of you remember? I tend to want to forget. But you see, identity is a big thing. And the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus, deals with identity. I heard identity come up this week. This week, I went to a retirement celebration for a lieutenant colonel that attends City Church who's been on faculty at the JAG school. He was an attorney that, he was an attorney that ended up being a professor at the Judge Advocate General School at the law school at UVA. So I went to his retirement party. It was so inspiring. The room was filled with people with uniforms, people with medals, and all of these kind of crossbar things that showed they had done great things. And I was in that room, and as I looked around at those uniforms, I was inspired. Not enough to have ever really wanted to do that, but I was inspired. And after Brad received all of these accolades and his wife had a medal that was given to her for her involvement, it was such a powerful experience as he moved towards retirement. When he was done and all the accolades and people said wonderful things about him, here's what he said. He said, I have loved wearing this uniform for the past 20 years. I've loved it. Absolutely loved it. He said, but to the crowd... This uniform does not define who I am. It doesn't. 
He said, there are two things that define my life. It's faith and the people that I'm in relationships with. The uniform does not define his life. In other words, his identity is not found in those things, but his identity is found in faith and in the people that he is in relationship with. Now, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul. In order to understand Paul, we have to know a little bit or understand his letter. It would be helpful to know a little bit more about him. The Apostle Paul is Jewish. Not only is Jewish, but most of us believe because of what he writes to the letter of, to the church in Corinth that he is single. He's not married, most likely widowed. But the Apostle Paul is someone who was a leader in the Jewish faith. He was a Pharisee. Not only this, but the Apostle Paul had an experience where when he was actually on the road to arrest and most likely kill Christians... He was a Jewish leader who felt like the Christian movement was a cult that needed to be dealt with harshly and to take those people out. He was on the road to go do that. While he was on the road, Jesus met him in resurrected form. The Apostle Paul was categorically transformed. Paul went from someone who the Bible says breathed murderous threats. He was filled with anger and rage against Christians where he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life was fundamentally transformed. His identity shifted from being a Jewish leader, a supreme intellect, someone who had been trained under the most powerful intellects of his day to where now he calls himself and his core identity becomes being a follower of Jesus. Not only this, The scripture tells us that at some point, there was a change in his name. His name was Saul, but he becomes to be known as what? Paul. Now, most of us would think that that was because of some, maybe Jesus said, your name was Saul, now you're Paul. Not at all. Here's what the Bible says. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, somewhere he goes from Saul to Paul. So Paul is the one that writes this letter. And in the midst of this, he writes to the church of Ephesus an empowerful and insightful beginning to his letter. And I want to read it to you. I just want you to listen. But as I read it, I want you to listen for the idea of in Christ. Here's what Paul writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That was made known to us in the mystery 
of his will according to his good, good pleasure which he poured out in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. One of the main themes of the book of Ephesus or the letter to the church of Ephesus is unity. But as I mentioned this morning, I want to talk to us very definitively kind of about the vision that Paul has for this new group of people and how through that we achieve an identity that isn't found in the world. So here's what Paul writes at the end of what I just read. He writes, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed, what are the next two words? In Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, what are the last two words? Under Christ. Now, you might be a brand new follower of Jesus, but I want you to listen very carefully to what I want to talk about next. And it's this. That God, since the moment Jesus was born, has been redeeming this broken, fallen world to where through Christ, God is bringing in his divine invasion into this world through Jesus. And it was through the birth of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection that a new identity, a new way to live, a new kingdom with a new king has been ushered into this world. And the moment you say yes to Jesus, you become part of what God is doing in this world. At the end of this, the Apostle Paul announces that God, through his wisdom, is going to be bringing all things together in unity when the time comes in heaven and on earth and it will all be placed under Christ, all of it. Now, what I want us to do is have God's vision for what he means by this because it's key. Because in order to have an identity that's in Christ, we have to understand the vision of God through Christ. So what I'm going to ask that you would do with me is I'm going to read one paragraph from the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. And it's here in Revelation 21 that John the Revelator gives us a vision of God's future for the world and for you and me. Here's what Revelation 21 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now the reason for that is in the Jewish mind, sea, the sea is the seedbed for evil. That's where evil comes from. If you read through the book of Revelation, you'll find that all evil powers come up out of the sea. So in this future vision, there will no longer be any sea. John the Revelator continues, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. You see, the Apostle Paul talks about in Christ. In Christ, what's going to happen is all things on heaven and on earth will come together under him. John the Revelator gives us a vision of this, and I want you to understand it crystal clear. It's this. is that right now, heaven and earth are in many ways separated, but through Christ, he now begins to invade earth with heaven. The end of the Bible announces this, that there will come a day when God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and what is now which is filled with dysfunction and brokenness and weeping and pain and lack of unity, that God on that day, on that day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And if you continue to read, here's what you would clearly understand. There's no longer any separation between the two. The two become one. And the Lord's prayer will finally be answered. Because the Lord's prayer simply says this. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the grand vision of God is that there will come a day where heaven and earth literally come together and they will be under Christ. And that in the meantime, God, through Christ, is making all things new. All things are being redeemed in Christ and through Christ, including you and including me, if you're open to it. But until that day, the Bible's clear. We will live in tension. And the tension theologically is always known, the already, but not yet. That God has already accomplished this, that his will is irreversible. There will come a day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. They will be joined as one. No longer any separation. And oh, by the way, no longer any need for the sun either because Christ will be in the center and the light of God will be everything that anyone needs. But you see, until that happens, we live in tension the tension of the already, but not yet. How many of you sitting here know exactly what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. But the idea is, is that until that day, until that day, we gather to worship. Because you see, when you sit in the midst of worship, something happens. When you sit in the midst of worship, heaven begins to come down and touch earth. 
And when heaven touches earth, suddenly our identity as strangers in this world begin to make sense. Not only this. That's why there's teaching like this one. Because God wants us to understand because the Christian life isn't just an experience. It's an experience that's rooted in understanding of God's plan for all of creation and making all things new. But in the meantime, we struggle. That's why on Monday night, I'm going to be pastoring for six weeks through a program that we call Soul Care. It's an opportunity for people who have had an identity that's been outside of Christ. And because of what happened outside of Christ, there's a sense in your heart, in your soul, and in your life that things are not completely made new. There are things that you're wrestling with and you're struggling with, and at times it seems like they overwhelm your life. That's why I help with this discipleship process called soul care. Because when your identity has been outside of Christ and you're now moving into Christ, there's brokenness and dysfunctions. And so we have soul care where we've seen over 150 people go through soul care and find freedom in their lives. And then there's also life groups. Why? Because when you're gathering together a new identity, when your identity begins to shift from one thing to the next, to be around people that have that identity, it helps you to understand what it looks like to live that kind of a life. Now, the Apostle Paul not only gives this grand vision, and what I read to you is the vision of God. It's not just from Paul, but we see it from John. We see it from the Apostle Peter. We see it come out of the other disciples as well, that God has got this grand design that there will come a day when heaven and earth come together. There will no longer be any separation. And when that happens, all dysfunction and brokenness will be gone. But until that day, until that day, we find in Christ the hope that we need in order to continue to move towards him. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes at the very beginning of what I read. Praise, which actually is more accurately translated blessed or blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Notice those last two words. Blessing where? In Christ. It's incredible because 27 times in the book of Ephesians alone, the Apostle Paul talks about being in Christ. Throughout all of his letters, it's over 150 times that the Apostle Paul talks about being in Christ. Now in this, though, there's something fascinating that you can't really catch as you read it from the beginning. And that is, is that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, 3, actually goes through the rubric of a Jewish blessing. It's called the Baraka. The Baraka. And the Baraka is a blessing where someone blesses God because of who God is. And it's out of that blessing towards God that God moves in the hearts and the lives of people. 
And here's what we need to understand is that for thousands of years, Jewish people have gathered together and they've quoted Barakas to each other. Because you see, when someone brings that type of a blessing and you hear that blessing over and over and over again, and if you ever go to Israel or you listen to some things about the Hebrew people, you'll discover they have these rote prayers that they're constantly bringing. And the purpose for it is, is it's a baraka, and here's why. When you hear those prayers over and over, suddenly you understand your identity because you understand who God is. And it's through those prayers that the Israelite people constantly understand their identity. That's what the Apostle Paul uses at the beginning of what I read to you from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Do you know the reason why we say a blessing over our food? Do you know why you say a blessing over your meals? It's a Jewish baraka. It's an announcement before you eat that God is the God that has provided. And through that, you understand your identity, or at least you should, especially if the food is good. Now again, the Apostle Paul begins by saying, blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. How? In Christ. There's something about that understanding that the Apostle Paul has that literally transforms his identity. And then as he concludes, and just following what I read to you, the Apostle Paul says a prayer. After the blessing is done and after he lists so many things, and we'll get to the list in a moment, that is available to us in Christ, he prays a prayer which is very Jewish. So when the blessing is done, when the baraka is done, then there's a prayer. And the prayer he prays is this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Please understand this. Know this, that for faith to be an operation in our hearts, for us to truly be a group of people who are in Christ, the eyes of our heart have to see it. Here's why. Often, there's not a lot of evidence of God's new creation in this world. I wonder when the last time is that you've turned on the news You've watched the five o'clock news, and when you got done, you went, hallelujah, praise Jesus. But what Paul prays is that for those of us who are in Christ, that the eyes of our hearts would be able to see what Christ is doing. And his prayer is unique because he uses the word enlightened. It means to shine a light on. But here's what's fascinating. This is in the passive tense. This is not something you can do for yourself. It's something God does for you. You're the recipient of it. And Paul's prayer is, is that your heart and my heart would literally see who Jesus is. We begin to see what it means to be in Christ. And in seeing that, our identity would be found in Jesus. I have a deep concern 
And my concern is, is for many of us, or some of us maybe, that as followers of, our, of Jesus, our identity is found in something else or found somewhere else. We're a follower of Jesus. But if you were to say who you are, it's wrapped up in other things. And the reason why I'm concerned about it is this, is because those other things shift those other things are not eternal. Those other things are a moving target. But when you find that your identity is in Christ, it is the most stable thing in all the world. Most stable thing there is. Well, when we look at this, the question has to be, how in the world do I put feet to my faith with this? Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul writes at the end of his prayer, as you also were included where? In Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. The idea being that in order to be in Christ, we hear the message of Jesus. And it's so simple but it's so life-changing that you and I have had our identity somewhere else. And because of where I've been and what I've done, suddenly I begin to recognize that who I am and what I am is filled with conflict and filled with tension and filled with regret. Look, I became a follower of Jesus as a preteen boy. I didn't even have publishable sins. I just didn't. I stole gum from my mom's purse. I mean, it's just little stuff, but I can remember walking across the fields of our farm, and as I walked across those fields, I could sense the reality of the brokenness of my own heart and my own life. And then I heard the gospel of Jesus. It was simple. God takes you just where you are, but in Christ, in Christ, the judgment from God for my sin is placed on him. And Jesus, out of love for me, goes to the cross. And while he's on the cross, my sin and the sin of the whole world is placed on him. And while he is on the cross, out of love, the Bible says he cries out to his heavenly father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had never experienced the separation. He had never experienced not being in 100% unity with his heavenly father. You see, Jesus' total identity was in God the Father. And when sin invaded him, that relationship was stretched to its limit. When I heard what Jesus did for me, I accepted that as a preteen boy. And then what I discovered was, it's not so much that the tension went away. It was that the tension was totally different. Now I sensed the tension between who I am and what I am. 
and what God is doing in this world and what is called, God has called me to do and be. But when I read the end of the book, my life is filled with hope and filled with joy because there will come a day when he will wipe away every tear and every dysfunction will be gone and every sorrow will be done away with and heaven and earth will come together. And in that moment, in that moment, I will know what it is to live fully as God intended. But until then, I have my identity in Christ. I have a vision for my life. I have a vision for the future. I have a vision that will never shift because it's concrete in a God who never lies. Never lies. Paul, in his opening prayer, tells us this. In Christ, in Christ, we are blessed. We are spiritually blessed. In that Barak that he gives, he announces that we are chosen in Christ, that we are forgiven in Christ, that we are made holy in Christ, that we are declared blameless in Christ, that we are adopted in Christ, we are redeemed in Christ, and that we are all given an inheritance in Christ. I have watched for over 30 years of ministry now, 20 years plus here at City. I have watched where people have come in through the doors of our church. It doesn't have to happen at church, but often it does. Where someone will invite a friend and the friend comes through these doors and then worship starts. I've lost count of how many people have come up to me when I've asked them about, how'd you meet Jesus? And they'll say this, came in and I sat down at City and then that band or whatever you call it started and then people began to worship. Quite a few people would say when worship began, I was a little uncomfortable. But then all of a sudden, something began to get a hold of me. Something I had never experienced before. I actually had one person, when they explained it to me, they swore as an adjective. I said, well, we'll talk about that. But I said, you know what that was? That was the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of that, the eyes of their heart were beginning to open to who Jesus is. And it wasn't long that their identity that had been in so many different things that had left them brokenhearted and let down, now their identity is in Jesus. And in Jesus, they found those intangible things that are so important, like forgiveness and love and peace and strength and a vision for their life that went beyond this temporary world that is so broken and where the struggle is so deep. What we're going to do now is we're going to worship together just for a few moments. And then there are two people who will be baptized in water. These people have found their identity in Jesus. And we're going to celebrate with them. 
as they move into the waters of baptism. So let's stand together and let's worship as we sing about the living hope that is found in Christ.